listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, as you have a seat, let me uh, introduce myself if we haven't met. My name is Clint. I'm one of the pastors on staff. If you're a guest with us, we are particularly thankful uh, that you're gathering with us or again, watching online or wherever you might find yourself. We would love to connect with you. Um, if you would wanna do that, feel free to stop by the guest info tent on the way out or fill out a connect card or whatever is easiest for you. Um, if you have a Bible, will you turn with me to chapter 13 of the gospel according to Matthew? Matthew chapter 13 is where we're gonna be today. We started this chapter last week and Bill is gonna finish it next week and we said that this is a, a turning point in the gospel of Matthew because it is a chapter of scripture that has eight uh, stories that Jesus tells, right? So eight what he calls parables. And oftentimes they're called parables of the kingdom. And just a reminder, the word parable is from two Greek words, one that means to cast or to throw, and the other one means beside. So together, the word parable means to put two things beside one another. It's essentially a comparison. It's basically saying this is like that. And what Jesus would do is he would take parables or use parables to take a complex theological idea like the kingdom of God and help people understand it, help those who are interested in following after him get, gain insight about what the kingdom of God is like. And so last week, um, we started with the first parable in Matthew 13, and we said that this parable is the key to understanding all the rest. That was the parable of what? Anyone remember? The sower, two of you remember, and that's awesome. Um, so the parable of the sower is Jesus telling a story about a farmer. Essentially, you get this farmer who goes throughout these fields and he's throwing seeds all over the place. And then he says there are, what, four different types of soil. And these four types of soil describe four different types of human heart. And he says that the sower sows good seed and these four different types of soil, again, describe the human heart. And so Jesus uses these parables to help us understand something about the kingdom of God. Well, what do we learn about that? Farming, seed, soils. It's, um, it's this, the point is, the delivery of the seed is not the determining factor on whether or not something is fruitful. It's the condition of the soil. And so what Jesus is saying, and again, this is helpful as we move into the next couple of parables, he's saying what matters when it comes to the kingdom of God is not primarily what's external, even though that does matter. The, the central thing is the, the matter of the heart. The condition of the soil, what matters is the heart. And he says that some will receive the seed and some won't. But, he says, there will be a harvest. There will be a harvest, right? So Matthew 13, verse 23, at the end of the parable of the sower, he says, as for what was sown in good soil, he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in one case 60, in one case 30. Again, his point is there will be a harvest. And all three of the parables we're gonna look at today, he reiterates this same point, that there will be a harvest, which means this for us, that God is working. When Jesus says, and I'm gonna say that so many times today that you're gonna be tired of hearing me say there will be a harvest. When we say that, what that means is God is working always, even when it doesn't seem like it because the kingdom of God is a certain reality. The, the kingdom of God is not a possible outcome if, God, um, if everything works out the way that God hopes and he plans. The kingdom of God is a certain reality and Jesus wants his disciples to know that there will be a harvest. And we'll talk about what that harvest is here in a few minutes. I wanna read these three parables first and then we'll spend some time talking about it. Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. Jesus, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, 
His enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field and it's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. All right, so Jesus tells these three stories. And the first one is called the parable of the weeds. And the first thing when I read this that stood out to me is that this is another agricultural story. It's another story about farming, right? So we have the first one, the parable of the sower, and this again is a story about farming. And remember what's at stake here. Um, this is the king, Jesus, describing for us what life in the kingdom is like, right? So there's a lot at stake here. He wants to show us what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how to live our life under his rule and reign. That's what we mean when we say kingdom, uh, and in verse 24, the king is describing for us what this is like. He says, it may be com- the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom, and we have to do a little bit of work here to understand what's going on, because not only are we not uh, living currently in the first century Middle East, but most of us aren't farmers, all right, and so just to be clarify for a second here, if what you have going on in your mind is something that happens in your backyard in raised garden beds, that's not what this is talking about, okay? That doesn't apply. And, it, and I'm not saying that you're not great at gardening or your garden beds aren't awesome or your tomatoes aren't great. They probably are, and I'll take some when the harvest comes, right? Um, what I'm saying is that the closest most of us come to farming is walking through the produce aisle, all right? So we have to do a little bit of work here to understand what's going on. So he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in this field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and they went away. So we get these first two verses. Jesus is setting the stage for the parable and what he describes is a story of agricultural sabotage, right? Again, since most of us aren't farmers, I think our response falls way short of what Jesus is going for here, and it falls way short of how his original audience would have heard this story. So we hear that story, there's a man who has a field, that's pretty awesome, I like to have a field, right? My yard's pretty small, but he's growing weed in it, and then this guy comes and he messes it up, and our response is kinda, oh man, that's a bummer, right? Like if you are hungry when you get home, you wanna make a sandwich and you go and you grab your bread and it's all moldy, and you're like, that's a bummer. Right, But then that doesn't really affect the way you live your life because you probably are just gonna eat something else. Or better yet, you're gonna go to Chick-fil-A. Well, not today because it's closed. Sorry, I didn't mean to put that on you. Um, That was unintentional. But we hear that and we think, oh man, that's a bummer. And this is not the type of response that Jesus would have uh, expected out of the crowd. Right? This is more like if your, your house has ever been broken into. 
Uh, this happened to me when I was a kid, or my family rather. Um, so not only when that happens, are you devastated financially because you probably aren't gonna be able to just go buy all the things that were stolen or broken. Not only is that true, but you feel wronged and you feel violated. And something inside you wells up that says, um, that, that's not right. This isn't fair, right? You want justice. You don't just want your stuff back. You want your stuff back and you want the people who took it from you to pay for taking it. And that is what would be welling up in the heart and mind of Jesus's original audience. And what makes this worse is this word that's translated weeds in the parable of the weeds is not the generic word weeds in the Greek language. It's a different word that refers specifically to the type of weed, the type of plant that looks identical to wheat during the entire growing process until it produces fruit. And then you can tell that it's not, uh, not actually wheat. And what makes that so devastating is that since you can't tell them apart, you spend the entire growing season cultivating these plants, spending your time and your energy and your resources to make them grow. And then when, because you think they're gonna produce good fruit for you, they're gonna reap a harvest that you want in your life, but then it leaves you disappointed and, and frustrated and you go, what happened here? How did this get here, right? So this is what's going on in the story and that would be welling up in them this sense of justice, this isn't right. Someone should pay as Jesus tells the story. Look what happens next, verse 27. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. And so the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? So Jesus says the servants come up to the farmer and they ask him three questions, right? The first thing they say is, did you not sow good seeds? I'm struggling here, hold on. There we go. They say, did you not sow good seeds? And the second thing they say was, if you did, well then how can there be weeds and wheat in the field if you sowed good seeds? And the third question they ask him is, well, do you want us to take care of it? Do you want us to go and gather them, essentially is what they say. So these three questions I think are absolutely central to why Jesus tells this parable. And we're gonna come back to those in a second because what I want you to see first is how the, the farmer responds. So they say, do you want us to go and gather them? In verse 29, he says, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So this is not what they would have expected. Right? Remember, their hearts, their minds would have been full of a sense of justice. This isn't fair. Someone needs to pay. What are we going to do about this? And so they say, what do you want us to do? And the farmer says, nothing. I don't want you to do anything. I want you to let the wheat and the weeds grow together. And at harvest time, I will take care of it. Again, we can't miss the point that there will be a harvest. But this is not what they would have expected, not how they expected the story to end. And Jesus says that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. So what about this story teaches us about the King Jesus and how we as his disciples are supposed to live our lives as citizens of his kingdom under his rule and reign? How does this story help us with that, right? Well, we said last week that Jesus's parables weren't sermon illustrations, they are the sermon. So what is the point of this sermon? And if you're like, man, I have absolutely no idea. The good news is, so did Jesus' disciples. They had no idea either because Matthew says that after the parable of the weeds, Jesus tells two more parables, the mustard seed and the leaven, and then when he gets alone with his disciples later, they ask him specifically, can you tell us about the weeds? They don't ask to clarify the mustard seed and the leaven because they don't understand this. Let's look at how Jesus explains this to them. 
Verse 36. Well, then he left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus gives a pretty detailed explanation of the parable. Doesn't really leave any stones unturned, right? Just kind of walks through it. First thing he says, verse 37, the farmer, the sower in the field who sows good seed, that's the son of man, right? And we said this a couple times in our series through the, the book of Matthew. Son of man is an Old Testament messianic title. It's this prophecy given about this one who would come. It's from Daniel chapter seven, who's gonna be glorified like God, but he's gonna be like man. He's gonna have this power over all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus, that's the primary way that he refers to himself. Jesus says, that's who I am. I'm the son of man. And in this story, the son of man is the sower, the owner of the seed, right? Verse 38, Jesus says that the field of the parable is the world, that the good seed that's sown that grows up into wheat that is the sons of the kingdom. And the bad seed that's sown, it grows up into weeds. That is the sons uh, of the evil one. That's what he says. And in verse 39, he tells us who the evil one is. He says, the enemy is the one that sows bad seed. And he is the devil. And he says, the harvest that is coming. In the parable, that is the end of the age. This word end, it, it means uh, in the original language, consummation or completion. The idea is it's what we would call the end times, right? He's talking about what happens when life as we know it comes to an end. And then Jesus says that the reapers in the story, the parable, the weeds are his angels. In verse 41, I wanna read this again. It says, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and they'll throw them into the fiery furnace and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what becomes clear is that the harvest that Jesus is talking about is the judgment that will follow his second coming. This is what Jesus is talking about in the parable of the weeds. The Bible teaches that there's a day coming in the future. We don't know when it's gonna be, God does, but there's a day coming in the future where the sky's gonna crack open and Jesus is going to come back, only he's not gonna come the way he came the first time. The first time he came how? In meekness, as a baby. He came to be the Messiah. He came as a savior. The Bible says the second time Jesus comes, when he returns, when the sky cracks open, he's gonna come as a warrior king. And Jesus says in Matthew 13, that day will be really, really good for some people. But it will be really, really bad for everyone else. And verse 43 says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. John has a vision in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and he describes this day like this. Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That is the righteous shining in the kingdom of their father. It's not just that you go to heaven or that you don't go to hell. It's that you get to be with God forever that you get reconciled relationship with God the Father. Everything that sin had broken will be made better than brand new, right? This is what's happening. 
Um, and, and he goes on to say in verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Jesus is saying there will be a harvest. It's coming. The kingdom of God is a certain reality and this day will be really, really good for some, but it will be really bad for everyone else because at the end of verse 41, he says that he's gonna send his angels to gather all of those who broke the law, who did not live their life gladly under Jesus's rule and reign, under his kingdom and his kingship, and it says, instead of shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father, they're gonna what? They're gonna burn in the fiery furnace. A place, Jesus says, he describes it this way, it'll be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. This weeping and gnashing of teeth, weeping is what you think it is, right? You have a reason to cry. It's deep sorrow, but this phrase, gnashing of teeth, is a Hebrew idiom. It just means to kind of grit your teeth. It's almost this idea of regret, and what Jesus is saying is that the opposite of shining like the sun in the king, kingdom of your heaven, heavenly father is this combination of deep physical, spiritual, and emotional pain. It's physical because it's excruciating, like being burned alive. That's the way Jesus describes it. And it's coupled with the deep emotional pain of regret and the spiritual pain of the complete absence of God. Church, Jesus says there will be a harvest. And you can't miss this. The reason why he tells this parable is because just like in the story, how Jesus' audience would have had complete different expectations of how the farmer should deal with the one who sowed uh, weeds in his field. His disciples, in the same way, have different expectations on how he should deal with those who are outside of his kingdom. And did you notice that the, one of the main parts of the parable are the three questions that we talked about that the workers ask the farmer. But when Jesus explains the parable in incredible detail, he leaves those questions out. He doesn't say what those are about, right? And I think these three questions, what he's doing there is he's highlighting them to his disciples because he knows that his disciples have the same question. So when the weeds come up in the field, the workers ask him. They say, did you not sow good seed in your field? And if you grab onto this, you understand this is not about seeds. This is an accusation against the farmer. This is, are you not a good farmer? And then they say, if you were such a good farmer, then why does your field have so many weeds in it? Right, isn't this evidence that you're not as good as you say you, say you are? And then lastly, they say, well, then what do you want us to do about it? Should we go pull them up? And Jesus highlights these questions because these were the same things people had, the same questions people had for him and for his kingdom because they had wildly different expectations about what it would be like when the Messiah came. They expected all out military overthrow of Rome that would put Israel or the people of God back into the place of power and prominence as God's people. That's what they expected, right? And Jesus says about the kingdom in this parable, there will be a harvest, meaning there's a day coming that you can bank on where the righteous will shine like sons with their father in the kingdom. But he's saying, for that day, we will have to wait, right? And they say, well, do you want us to go gather the weeds? And Jesus says, no, and here's why. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Which we'll talk about more in a second. But again, this is not what they expected the coming of the Messiah to bring, right? They're looking around thinking, if you're the Messiah the way you say you are, then how come since we've been following you, our lives have gotten far more difficult, not better? That's what they're saying. This is what happened to John the Baptist in chapter 11. Y'all remember John the Baptist? 
Chapter three, where is he? He's in the wilderness. He's eating locusts and honey, wearing camel's hair. He's preaching to anyone who'll listen. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is no one who is more sold out about Jesus as the Messiah and the kingdom of God than John the Baptist. Later in the gospel, he's in the, in the river Jordan. People come out to be baptized by him. Jesus walks out and says, he wants to be baptized. And John says, no, 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 you need to baptize me because he's so convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. But then what happens in chapter 11? John's not in the wilderness anymore. He is in prison, which means his expectations about what it meant to associate my life with the Messiah, King, is not being met because here I am sitting in prison. So what happens? He sends messengers to Jesus to say this, chapter 11, verse three, are you the one or should we look for another? This is what happens. All of a sudden, life doesn't go the way that John thought it should and he starts to question things. And this is what happens when God doesn't meet our expectations as well. So you're going about your life, going to church, reading your Bible, following Jesus, right? Life is great. It's a great. Show up here on Sunday, man, how's it going, brother? Oh, too blessed to be stressed. We're good. Life's great. Praise God. Life is good. And, and, and it is. And then what happens? Out of nowhere, you lose your job. Or you get cancer. Or someone you love gets cancer, which is probably worse. And your spouse decides maybe one day you come home from work, everything's great. And they say, no, I'm out, man. This isn't working anymore. Or your car breaks down again, or your kids aren't listening to you, or, or you just look around and you see the evil and the brokenness in this world, and you think the same thing begins to well up in your soul that says, this isn't right. It shouldn't be like this. These things should not be happening. They definitely shouldn't be happening to me, God, because look at all the things that I am doing for you, right? This is where we go in our hearts, in our mind. And we think, why is he not doing something about this? We ask the same questions, but instead of accusing this farmer of not being good because there's weeds in his field, we say to God, how could there be so much evil and brokenness in my life and the world around me? I guess you're not good or you're not God, right? Jesus tells this parable to his disciples because he knows they have these same questions. They have these expectations about the Messiah and about what life in the kingdom would be like. And ultimately what he wants them to hear is that there will be a harvest, that day is coming, it's just not today. And he wants to, he tells them this parable to not discourage them, but to encourage them to press on that no matter how dark your days might be, there's a day coming where you will shine like your father or shine in the kingdom with your father where he will wipe away every tear in your, out, in your eyes. And I think, church, this is what this parable is supposed to be for us too. It's supposed to be an encouragement. Not create fear in us where we begin to wonder like, which one, which one am I? It's supposed to encourage those of us who are in Christ. And so I wanna look at these questions and see where do we need to reshape our expectation about Jesus? If you would consider yourself a Christian or a Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus, where do we need our expectations shifted about what it means to follow after him with our lives and to live our lives in his kingdom? Let's look at verse 27. The first question, they the servants of the master of the house come and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? And then skip down to 28. He said to them, an enemy has done this. An enemy has done this. So the first question they ask is essentially an accusation. It's, are you a good God? Are you a good God? And if you are, then how could there be so much evil and brokenness in the world? Jesus says, an enemy has done this. And in his explanation, he tells us who the enemy is. He says the enemy is the devil, right? So in the parable, what Jesus is saying is, and teaching us about the kingdom, is that even though there are weeds in the field, it's not because the owner put them there. 
which means that even though God is the creator of the world, he is not the author of sin. It means that evil and sin that's in the world is because of the enemy, the devil, right? He says an enemy has done this, and so we don't have time to deep dive here, but isn't it interesting that in the first two parables, these stories that Jesus tells us that give us a picture about what the kingdom of heaven is like, isn't it interesting that in both of those first two stories he mentions, he wants us to know we have an enemy. That's interesting to me because the vast majority of Christians that I know rarely ever talk about it. And I'm not saying that we should you know, swing the pendulum the whole other way and then begin obsessing about Satan and you know, your AC doesn't work in your vehicle and that's him trying to get you. And like, I'm not saying that we need to swing it that far. But what I am saying is that every single Christian should be able to answer this question. It's that where in my life am I susceptible to an attack of the enemy? I think every Christian should be able to answer that question. Because Jesus says the enemy, or there is an enemy who is actively working to sow seeds of sabotage in your life, in the life of the church, so that the witness of the church will be mute. This is what he's telling us in both the parable of the sower and in the parable of the weeds. And he's, it's, he's saying, if you notice, the seed that he sows, it's deceptive. It's deceptive. It's not, it's not so different that you just dismiss it altogether, but it grows up and at first you think that's, it's right and it's good and it's gonna produce good fruit and so you spend your time and your energy and your resources cultivating it until it's too late. It's like Genesis 3, the fruit that the enemy offers Adam and Eve, it looks good to the eyes, but it leads them to death. This is how Satan works. This is how our enemy works that Jesus wants us to be aware of. He is, the Bible says, the deceiver and the accuser. Meaning he will deceive you with something that looks like it's good for your soul and invite you down a path and continue to tempt you with that things until you give in and then you get there and he will turn on you and accuse you and say, how could you? How could you do that? And then we're gonna put these seeds of shame in your life as the, as the accuser, even though he invited you into that and say, how could God love someone like you? You call yourself a Christian. Jesus wants, our, wants us to know we have an enemy, someone who is actively working to sow seeds of sabotage in our lives, right? So where in your life are you susceptible to an attack from the enemy? Maybe a better way to say it is this. What are you pouring your time, energy, and resources into? Into something that you think is going to produce for you life and satisfaction, but in the end, it's gonna leave you dissatisfied and worse off than you were before. Where are you susceptible to an attack of the enemy. The second question they ask is, well then if you are good, how can there be evil and brokenness in the world? Right? That's what they ask him. And this is one of the primary stumbling blocks for people to believe in and trust in the God of the Bible. It's how do you reconcile an all-powerful God who is good and the fact that there is still evil and brokenness in the world. Like how do you put all those, those things together? The thought process goes like this. If God is, if he allows evil to exist, then he is either not powerful enough to do anything about it, or he doesn't care enough to do anything about it, right? This is a huge stumbling block for people as they come to um, try to believe and trust in the God of the Bible. How can all these things exist in this, at the same time? And I think Jesus answers those questions for us in this parable. In verse 29, Jesus responds to, do you want us to go and gather them? He says, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. 
So he says the way that all of these things can coexist, that God is all powerful and all good and yet evil and brokenness exist in the world, the way they can coexist is because God is patient. God is patient. Jesus says, no, don't pull up the weeds now because you will ruin some of what would otherwise grow up and be good. What's happening here is because you can't tell the difference between the wheat and the weeds when the roots are like superficial and you can't tell until it's time for the harvest. And you see then that they're different. And, w- and if you were to pull them up, when you notice it, it would compromise the wheat. That's what's happening here. Jesus says, no, God is patient. So he says, don't pull them up. But he's not saying he's going to leave them there forever. He says, don't pull them up now because there's coming a day where I will pull them out myself. And we have to hear this. This means that God is patient toward evil, but he is not passive toward evil. That's what this is teaching us. It means that he is all powerful, all knowing, he is all good and it means for you and me that he sees the evil and brokenness in the world and he sees the very pain points in your life and he is patient toward them and yet him being patient does not mean he doesn't care about them. It's because he knows that if he punishes evil now, then some of the wheat will be lost. If you pull it up too soon, then some of the wheat will be lost. The parable teaches us that God is patient but it also teaches us that there will be a harvest, that these two things work together. There's coming a day where he will do something about the evil and brokenness in the world. There's coming a day where God himself will hold evil accountable. I want you to hear this again, verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will do what? He will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. There's coming a day where God himself will hold evil accountable. Jesus puts himself in the judgment seat. He's not just the owner of the field and someone else is gonna come. And this, is, this would have been the most surprising thing to the original audience is that he would say, I'm in control. Whose field is it? It's his. Whose angels are? It's his. Whose barn? Whose kingdom? It all belongs to him. And that's heavy, isn't it? When you read that and you hear, and they're gonna throw them into the fiery furnace in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is heavy. That is not a chipper passage for your Father's Day. Right, it's not my fault. I didn't pick the order of the text. It's heavy, and judgment scenes make us uneasy. They do. We don't like that. I don't like to preach it, if I'm honest. But oftentimes what happens is we shy away from them and don't preach them at all, or we soften it. We soften it, and we gotta go, yeah, yeah, but I know Jesus says that, but that's not really what God is like. Surely he's not gonna actually do that in the end of things, and there's, we didn't know, this is Jesus saying, this is exactly what God is like. This is exactly what God is like, and there will be a harvest. There is coming a day where God will personally deal with evil, right? And and we need to know that God is, he's patient, but he's not haphazard with his judgment. He's also not the the big grandpa in the sky that gives you everything you want and lets you get away with it. He is a loving father who cares deeply about the good of his children. He endures evil for a time, but he does not endorse it. And because he's good, he will deal with evil justly. And so as difficult as this is, we shouldn't shy away from this teaching or soften it for uh, several reasons, but let me give you two. The first reason why we shouldn't shy away from this is because Jesus says it. 
Jesus says, this is what God is like. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. He wants us to know that there will be a harvest. Jesus says it. The second reason is because understanding the doctrine of judgment and hell is the only way to know how much Jesus actually loves you. We shouldn't shy away from or soften the good news of the gospel because it's the only way to know what he's actually accomplished for you. If you don't understand the horror of judgment and, and the reality of hell, then you can't fully grasp the love of Jesus Christ for you. What happens is if the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to make your life a little bit better, then you're gonna hear that good news and go, yeah, but I'm going to the beach. It's not really gonna matter that much, right? But when the good news of the gospel is that Jesus loves you so much that he came and died in your place for your sins and he experienced in his very person the judgment and the God-forsakenness of the cross so that we who were sons of the evil one could be reconciled in the right relationship with God our Father and spend eternity with him, when that is the good news, that this is what Jesus saves us from and how much he loves you, that he would endure that so that you wouldn't have to. That changes things. And when we soften the reality of hell and judgment, we cut the legs out from underneath the gospel. Because it's just, I don't, I don't, it's great that Jesus came to make my life better, but my life's pretty good. That's how we live our lives. But this is what Jesus saves us from. This is how much he loves you, that he would endure that for you so that you wouldn't have to. In church, this is what is available to you if you are not a Christian. This is what is true about you if you are. It's what is available to you if you're not. This is what's available to you, the good news of the gospel, that we are saved by grace, which means it's a gift from God through faith in Jesus. This means that it's his righteousness, not our own, his perfection that counts for us, and God loves us not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. That's the good news of the gospel, that the real God of the universe loves the real you right now because of who Jesus is and what he's done. If you don't take my word for it, take God's. Romans 5 verse eight says that God shows his love for us. Other translations say God demonstrates, he declares, he proclaims to creation his great love for humanity in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's word, not mine. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, for God made him Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because what happens when you read that the righteous are gonna shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father and we think, yeah, but I'm not righteous. And the Bible says, no one's righteous. Not one, except for Jesus. And God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our guilt, our sin, our shame. He sees declared over us the righteousness of Christ because of who he is and what he has accomplished for us. And again, Jesus tells this parable to encourage his disciples not to scare them. This isn't a, hey, what side of the, of the thing are you on? You wanna burn or you wanna shine? That's not what he's saying. And again, I'm not saying that's not true. It is, that's what he says. I'm just saying his purpose in telling this story is to encourage disciples that no matter how dark your days may be now, there's coming a day where he will wipe away every tear from your eye. And the reason why God patiently endures evil is so that we might be brought to a full maturity. The God of the universe is all-knowing, all-powerful. He is patiently enduring evil because he, there's a coming a day where the sons and daughters of God will be brought to their full number and brought to their full maturity. 
And on that day, not a day before and not a day after, God knows when it is, Jesus is gonna come back. The third question they ask is, well, what do you want us to do? What should we do about it, right? Should we go and gather them? And what's interesting is that Jesus explains this parable to his disciples and he's like super clear on everything else. This is this and this is this and this is this and this is this, like all the way through, but he doesn't touch this question. He, he says, no, don't go pull them up. I mean, he answers them, but he doesn't say, well, well, what do you want us to do? He doesn't tell them. And I think um, this is where the next two parables come in. This is why Jesus tells these next two parables because they pretty much have the same point. And what's happening is Jesus is framing for us what we do as disciples of Jesus as we wait on him to do what he says he's gonna do. What do we do as we wait on the day where there will be a harvest? That's what these next two parables are about. And if you're like, man, we only got one done and we got two more, we're gonna be fine, all right? These are gonna go quick. Verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So the point of these two parables is pretty much the same and it's this, that you start with something small and seemingly insignificant, and then like leaven or mustard seed, right? And then what happens over time is that thing that was small and insignificant, it grows into something that no one would ever expect. That's the point of these two parables. Start small, seems insignificant, over time it grows into something that we would never expect. So remember, he's telling these stories to help us understand what the kingdom of heaven is like, right? So how is this like the kingdom? How does it start small and then grow? Well, think about how Christianity started. And then where it is today. How'd it start? 13 men wandering around in the desert, right? Their leader is a 30-something-year-old Jewish guy who leaves the family business, starts a ministry, ends up getting homeless, and then killed for it. That's how Christianity starts. The 12 other guys who were with him were no power, no position, no like, uh, influence in their communities. They're essentially nobodies, Right? And after Jesus dies and he raises from the dead, the spirit of God comes at Pentecost, Acts chapter two, empowers that group of nobodies. And then from that becomes a worldwide movement, which is the reason why we are sitting here today over 2000 years later on the other side of the planet, right? We started as this small and seemingly insignificant idea that Jesus is who he says he is and and that our God keeps his promises. That's where it started, seemingly insignificant. And then here we are, a couple thousand years later, billions of people around the world gathered today to worship Jesus as Lord, Savior, and King. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts small and insignificant, but it's gonna grow into something that no one would ever expect. And so this is true at a large scale, Christianity as a whole. If you think about the, the church capital C, universal, all Christians who have ever lived or will ever live, this is true. The kingdom of heaven is a mustard seed. But it's also true if you zoom in to our little local expression of this worldwide movement. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's like leaven. It starts small. It grows into something you never expect, right? Earlier this year, we celebrated 15 years in the life of this church. Where did this church start 15 years ago? Small group of people in one of our founding members' living rooms watching DVDs of another pastor of a church up in South Carolina. And then 15 years later, here we are. 
And we said this morning that we get to plant another church down in Richmond Hill. And this is not anything, because we're great, again, it's a group of nobodies that are empowered by God's spirit who's taken something small and insignificant and he's doing something that we would never even think about, right? To the point where we're planting this church and, and, and the, we want them to reach them with the good news that's the, transforming us from the inside out and it's not just Savannah or Richmond Hill or Pooler or the islands or wherever that you're driving in from. God takes that little thing and he's using it so that we get to be a part of what he's doing to transform the world with the good news of the gospel, it's why every year in the fall, and we'll do it in a couple months, we get to partner financially with a ministry to make sure that we get to see the Bible translated into languages it doesn't exist anymore because this small group of people gathered in this living room, watching DVDs from a pastor in South Carolina and the Spirit took that small thing and made it significant to where there are five people groups that exist on the world uh, who have God's word in their language because we get to invest in that. It's the same reason why we send uh, uh, missionaries around the world to other continents, right? Because ultimately we believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that our God keeps his promises, that his kingdom can be trusted. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed because what starts small and insignificant is actually growing into something that no one would expect. And this is not just true about capital C universal church or, or just our little local expression of this. This is true about us personally. This is what the message of the kingdom does in us individually. Yes, it spreads externally, but it also spreads inwardly. That's why he tells the parable of the leaven. Because the mustard seed grows from something small, big that everyone can see. The parable of the leaven, it starts inside us. And when the good news of the gospel, when that seed plants itself down into your heart, and when you do the work, as we talked about last week, the lifelong work of the disciple of soil tilling, of opening yourself to what God wants to do in your life, that seed gets down in you and it begins to transform you from the inside out. And it starts with just this mustard seed of faith that Jesus says, and then it changes your affections and your desires and your motivations and your actions. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, from one degree of glory to the next. That it's not some big, massive splash, but over time, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, you trust Jesus, you follow him faithfully, you wait patiently for the day that he says is coming and you look back and you go, man, look at what God has done in my life. Look at what God has done into the life of the people around me because when you're transformed by the power of the spirit, it doesn't stay in you, it spills out onto the people around you. And this is what happens is that God uses this internal transformation to expand the kingdom externally. So Jesus tells these three stories because he wants to teach us something about the kingdom. And he says, there'll be a harvest. There will be a harvest. And what he wants us to know is that even though it may not seem like it, God is always working. He's always working. He's patient for the good of his people, but he's not passive. There will be a harvest. There's coming a day where the God of the universe will grab you in his hands wipe away every tear from your eye. There's coming a day where you will, Jesus says, shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. He's patient for the good of his people, but he is not passive. He sees the pain in your life. He sees the evil and the brokenness in the world, and there's coming a day where he will deal with it. Jesus says there will be a harvest, and no matter how dark your days may be, the day where you shine will come. And what he's saying is this, ultimately. What do we do? I never answered that question. What do we do? while we wait on God to do what he's promised that he will do is that we live for his kingdom and not our own. 
right? The good news of the gospel is not, hey, Jesus came to make your life better. It's he came to make you from, bring you from death to life. So what do you do with your life? You go, I'm gonna live for his kingdom. I'm gonna live because God, the God of the universe is changing the world with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and he's invited us to be a part of it. So we live our life for his kingdom, not for our own. The question is, is this, do you trust him? Are you living for your kingdom or for his? Let me pray for us and then we'll sing and respond to the good news of the gospel this morning. Lord Jesus, we're thankful. We're thankful that we come into this room and we're undeserving of your love and your grace and your mercy and yet we're given it as a gift. So I pray for the the folks in this room, the men, the women, the children, I ask God that you would, by the power of their Holy Spirit, allow the, the good news of the gospel to, to work its way deeper into the heart of their lives in this moment. Would it begin to bear its fruit in their lives? Where they have a, a weak point in their life where they're susceptible to the attack of the enemy, I pray, God, that you would give them the courage to, to reveal that to someone around them. They wouldn't hold on to that, think they have it under control. Pray, God, that you would help us in those ways. Pray for the students who are on the way to camp now. I ask God that the good seed of the gospel would plant itself in in some high school kid's life this week. Pray God in faith, expectantly asking that they would follow after you faithfully, look back five, 10, 15 years from now and say, God, look at what you've done. Thank you that you invited us to play a role in what you're doing in the world. Help us, God, to live not for our own kingdom, but for yours. We ask that you help us with the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.